All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to What's the Big Idea? We are here with Walter Longo. Walter, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Walter, we're very excited to have you here. We've already got our Healthy Habit crew ready to go with intermittent fasting for March. Uh, you are one of the most highly regarded uh, experts in the field. And so why don't we just go ahead and start and tell me a little bit more about, uh, number one, where are you in the world currently and what are you uh, spending the most of your time working on? Yeah, so I'm at USC, University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and, uh, and in the, particularly in the uh, Andrews Gerontology Center, which is one of the oldest, probably the oldest comprehensive center to study aging. It was started here in the 60s, uh, and then there was a big building built in the 70s, which is remarkable because back then, it was just a crazy field, right? To think about studying aging was not nothing uh, to do with what we how we view it today. And then I spent another part of my year in, in Milan uh, running a lab on uh, molecular oncology, uh, so focusing on cancer research. Um, yeah, so then here is mostly aging research, going anywhere from simple system to mice to human clinical trials and epidemiological studies. And in Italy, it's mostly cancer. Uh, with the same range. Very cool. So, and if you could help us kind of, what's the through line between gerontology, oncology, and intermittent fasting, which many people know you for? Yes. So I think that, of course, there is a prevention and there is a treatment uh, uh, part, right? So at the prevention level, cancer is very, very closely associated with aging. Um, so very few people that are young get cancer. Uh, and, uh, you know, nearly 50% of people will get cancer in their lifetime. And, and the older you get, uh, uh, and the more likely you are to, uh, to get cancer. So in the, at the prevention level, they just aging and cancer go together for, for obvious reasons, you know, DNA damage, cellular damage, immune system becoming weaker, et cetera. Uh, from, and then we moved uh, also to the treatment. How do you treat cancer with intermittent fasting? So at the level of aging, calorie restriction is an old st uh, story, and we can talk about it later if you want. But um, in the aging field, it's a very old story. It's like, what happens if you just eat less calories, right? And, um, but, but eventually, this moved into uh, what happens if instead of eating less calories, uh, you um, eat the calories in a, or in addition to or instead of you eat the calories within a certain period of time every day, or what happens if you uh, periodically you don't eat calories and the rest of the time you you eat normal. Um, so yeah, so then um, all of those control aging in different ways, and probably uh, the, the the main reason is that the, the every organism that you can think of, from bacteria all the way to humans they face uh, a different uh, nutrition of food conditions, let's say, right? And so based on the food condition, they make a decision, do I move forward? Do I grow? Do I reproduce? Do I do everything that I want to do? Or do I stand by because there is no food to do everything that I need to do? I stand by and wait. And in, in that process, I try to age as slowly as possible. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's how the, the all different kinds of starvations and restrictions come in. They're giving the, the body a fundamental message about what strategy to take. Uh, and, uh, and that's why they can be very effective in your favor or very effective against you, depending on uh, who does it and, and how you do it. Very cool. Well, then why don't we just go ahead and start foundationally with a, an introductory description of what is intermittent fasting? Yeah, the intermittent fasting means absolutely nothing. Uh, I don't even know why people use it. You know, it's like saying intermittent East eating, right? What's e what is intermittent eating? Well, it's the way people eat, you know, Not uh, all the time, uh, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, intermittent fasting is the opposite of intermittent e eating. Um, so it means absolutely nothing. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, what a lot of people uh, think it means, uh, is that you extend the nightly, period where you don't eat at all, right? So let's say that normally the normal diet could be uh, eat within 12 hours and fast within 12 hours. 
And then you extend it to the fasting part to 14 hours, 16 hours, 18 hours, 20 hours. Uh, that's probably the most popular version of, of intermittent fasting. Um, and then there are other versions where you, you don't eat for, let's say, one or two days a week, uh, something called 5-2. And then there is you know, what we like to focus on, which is what if you just have a, every three months a period of, of a fasting mimicking diet. You don't even fast and you use a, uh, an FMD to, um, to achieve the effects that you may achieve with this uh, daily um, interventions. Yeah. Very cool. And so you talked about FMDs, fasting mimicking diets, and I definitely want to get a little bit more into that. But so what is happening in the body when we are fasting or elongating that period of time that we're not ingesting food? Yeah, so it depends how long uh, you go for, right? So if you go, let's say, less than 24 hours, uh, not much, uh, but, uh, but you're starting to see what's called ketone bodies going up. You're starting to see the glucose uh, going down. Uh, so that's the classic fasting glucose, right, that, that you do in the morning. So after 12, 13, 14 hours, um, it goes down a little bit, but not very much, right? So most people will have a fasting glucose above 90, let's say, right? So it's a lot of sugar still going around. Then as you extend that, uh, especially after two or three days, then you're starting to see the ketone bodies go way up, right? And then uh, you start seeing the, the glycogen, the reserves of glucose in the liver being depleted. And, and the fat now in mostly the abdominal fat, the reservoir, is, uh, we tap into it to begin uh, using fatty acids and additional ketone bodies uh, for fuel, right? So the brain will start using ketone bodies, the heart and, and all the organs will start using either fatty acid or ketone bodies to, uh, to operate. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, uh, and, and around four or five days, probably we're starting to see the autophagy, the, the, the breakdown process that, um, so it takes about at least three days to, for that to begin to happen. So essentially the human body begins to shrink, right? And very slowly and um, first using fat and, uh, and then eventually use and some muscle and then eventually, you know, if you go weeks and weeks without food, they start to use more and more muscle uh, as a, uh, as a um, font of energy. Cool. And so when you talked about the, you know, let's, let's call it like the 14, eight or the, you know, sixteen uh, eight. sorry. Um, kind of like fasting schedule and that you see minimal ramifications on the body. Like in your opinion, like what are the most effective for achieving some of those benefits of elevating ketones of increasing kind of, you know, utilization of fatty acids? Like what is, what is the optimal schedule that you would recommend for people who are looking to experiment with this type of diet? Yeah. So after 30 years of working on this and having been a student of Roy Walford, who 30 years ago was the world leading uh, expert on nutrition and longevity, um, I would say, you know, the fasting mimicking diet, right? So periodic use of, of a fasting mimicking diet. And, uh, and that's the best way to go. Uh, in addition to 12 hours of fasting and 12 hours, so I would go 12-12 and not 16-8, and we can talk about why. Um, so, yeah, 12-12 every day. We can go to 13. Uh, for cancer patients, we go to 14, uh, but uh, but that's about it, right? So, and then, um, yeah, maybe once, uh, say, diabetes patient, we just finished uh, several clinical trials, once a month FMD, and then normal people, maybe once every three to four months, the FMD for five days. And, um, and, uh, yeah. And then 12, 12, yeah, 12, 12 hours of fasting, 12 hours of feeding per day. Yeah. Got it. And so, and explain, so when you say 12, 12, does that qualify as a fasting mimicking diet or you're saying that there's something where you would no, do no. in the long, no, no, no. Yeah. So 12, so, 12, 12 is going to have nothing to do with the fasting mimicking diet is intermittent fasting is like okay. the minimum. So if you look at the work of Sachin Panda and, and, and all there's, you know, after, if you, if you, Take uh, say Americans that eat for 15 hours a day, and you bring it down to 12 hours, you're starting to see lots of benefits, right? 12, 11 to 12 hours, right, of eating, right, so and of fasting. Um, so, so then um, I will argue that that's probably the safest and best way to go, rather than go more than 13 hours of fasting every day, right, and uh, for lots of different reasons. 
And uh, but then because you need to reach the ketogenesis, the autophagy, and the shrinking and the re-expansion, which we've shown in a lot of papers to be at the center of... Uh, and, Walter, so on this show, one thing we like to do is when we're using terms like this, just for listeners so that they can really grasp what you're talking about, can you quickly just give an introduction to ketogenesis and ontology so that people who are listening for the first time understand what that means while you're kind of going a little deeper into the benefits? Yeah. So yeah, ketogenesis means what I said earlier, which is the fat breaks down and one of the products of fat breakdown is ketone bodies, right? So this, uh, so when ketone bodies are produced, and as I said, it takes uh, they begin to raise uh, after a short fast, but then they go way up after, let's say, three days of fasting, um, and that's ketogenesis. And then uh, autophagy just means self eat, right? The translation is self eat. So yeah. the body, as it's um, it doesn't get any food from the outside, it begins to eat itself. Right. And, and now what we uh, have shown is that um, this process um, seems to be selective. Right. So it seems the body seems to go after most damaged components first and and leave alone the, 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 good, the good components. And then sure. but the most important part is not really the breakdown. The most important part, we think, and now we've been publishing on this for, for 20 years is the re-expansion, right? So the re-expansion part is where it very clearly mice, and now we're starting to get the same as a similar evidence in beginning in human clinical trials. In the re-expansion, the body uses embryonic developmental-like processes to rebuild, right? So if you shrunk a, uh, an organ, now, for example, in old studies, uh, semi-starvation studies that they were allowed to be done in the 60s, uh, they show that the heart can can shrink by 41% in, uh, I forgot, how many, however many weeks of semi-starvation diet in humans, right? So now imagine now 41% smaller, and then in the 20 weeks following, they show that the heart is going back to the normal size. So in these 20 weeks, how do you go from a, a, a much smaller heart to a normal size heart? Some of it is expansion of cells, right? But so, probably a lot of it is generating new cells and new tissues. Um, now, we don't know for sure for the heart, but certainly for a lot of our different organs, uh, uh, we know that, right? So then, yeah, then if you, when you do say 16 hours, you're not gonna get any shrinking at all. The, the body has very, lots of nutrients coming from everywhere. So it's not worried about that. After three or four days, it begins that process. After 10 days, it goes even further. But now after 10 days, you're starting to get, you know, maybe, problems in addition to, to solutions. And so that's why, you know, we have to be very careful and, and not just looking at the benefits, but also looking at what could go wrong or what could be a side effects of going too long, let's say, with the fasting. Very cool. And so, um, you know, this, this runs contrary to, I think, popular wisdom that a lot of the people that we talked to prior to getting on the show with you today understand about intermittent fasting. It's a, a lot of what we had heard before this is again, understand like a, or don't don't don't. Well, that's why we're talking to you, Walter, is to get some, some, uh, some much deeper wisdom on the topic. So, no, um, I, I don't know, but, but certainly I can tell you that, you know, I spent my, I, I, my first project was on starving bacteria. My second project, UCLA in 1992 was on starving, uh, people with Walford. My third project was on starving yeast, right? So <laughs> I, I have to say that I, I do have, uh, I, I sort of grew up in this world of, of starvation and, and aging, right? And, and yeah, so then that's something that people should consider. Then you can listen to whoever you want to listen to. Yeah, I mean, it, it's helpful for me because I was just doing a, a longer fasting period just for the first time yesterday. And I was an hour before my, my fast period was up and I was getting ready for a two-hour coaching call. And so I actually decided, I was like, well, I feel tired. I don't want to deal with that right now. So I'm going to eat an hour early. And now you're telling me that that's actually okay. So this is working out for me right now. And so you'd recommended some of the periods that, that you would recommend for intermittent fasting, starting with 12-12 as a baseline. And then tell me a little more about the, the differences you had gone over, kind of ketogenesis and the benefits obviously there. And so tell me a little more about what the differentiator is between a fasting mimicking diet and how that differentiates from intermittent fasting. I mean, first of all, the fasting mimicking diet if you look at history, every 50 years or so, there is a big uh, explosion of fasting. And then the medical community turns against it, and then it goes away, right? 
Uh, and that's going to happen again unless we look at the medical standards, right? FDA and all of that. It doesn't necessarily need to include the FDA approval, but it should have that kind of a standard, right? So yeah, the fasting mimicking diet is about standardizing it uh, in a way, even though it's food, even though it's plant-based food, uh, can you standardize it so that every clinic and, and hospital and, and any group in the world that does research can, can test it exactly the same way? And there's many versions of the fasting making diet. But what is a fasting making diet? Essentially, at least in our hands, and we're the ones who came up with it, is a, a, um, a plant-based, low sugar, low protein, uh, a normal level, let's say mid-level of carbohydrate, uh, high-fat uh, nutritional program, let's say, that is designed where every ingredient, so because we spend a long time in investigating how each ingredient interacts with genes and cellular processes, we sort of fool the system in a way that um, you are eating, but the system responds by uh, not exiting the fasting response, right? It, like if you were water-only fasting. So, for example, proteins and certain amino acids give the order to cells to exit the fasting response. And so do sugar, right? So sugars, protein, and particularly certain amino acids are, are uh, giving the message to the human body, don't stay in the fasting response because we have food coming in. And so there is no reason to, to, to stay in the fasting response. Fats don't give that message, right? So then we, on top of that, we make it really good fat. So we sort of united the the let's say centenarian, the longevity, what I call the longevity diet with the fasting mimicking properties, right? And we want, so we wanted to have an extremely healthy um, fasting mimicking diet so that, that not only the body now has a five-day opportunity to get into a full fasting response, but as a five-day education on, on vegan diets, right? So you got five days on like sort of pure, really good food that is going to make sure that um, the, 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 the body interacts with the, the, the best ingredients that, that we know of, right? So yeah, that's, a, that's what a fasting mimicking diet is. And when you're following a fasting mimicking diet, which I'm just repeating what I heard there, is again, it's kind of amplifying fats and avoiding some of the proteins and sugars to like stay in that fasting response. What is the eating schedule that you are prescribing or, or recommending to people? Well, I mean, we, I mean, I wrote a book on this and I don't even own the book that my foundation owns it. So I don't make a penny out of it. And it's called the longevity diet. So I, I you know, I recommend that people uh, read the, the book. And uh, so, you know, it talks about the, the fasting making diet and, and how to do it. And also has a, a link to the clinic, the Create Cures uh, nonprofit uh, foundation clinic in Santa Monica that can follow people, uh, you know, telemedicine or, or live. And so I think it's very important to have a sort of an expert at least once in a while following you and, uh, and, and, you know, so telling you how to do it. But other than that, I think, you know, the fasting making diet comes in a package and I don't make a penny out of that. I donate everything to charity. So uh, I, I, but I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, it should be standardized. Um, it should be always the same. And I, I give you an example. We just went to the FDA recently uh, to test this for uh, hormone therapy in cancer, breast cancer. And, they, and, and I think there are about 60 ingredients in the fasting-making diet. And the FDA said, if you want to proceed with the clinical trials on, on uh, the fasting-making diet and cancer, you got to go from 60 to 7, right? And the reason for that is that... Sorry, 60, um, 60 to 7 what? 60 ingredients to 7 ingredients, right? Just 7 ingredients. So now it becomes like a drug. So then and only then, then we allow you to move forward testing this for breast cancer. Uh, why? Because it has to be so standardized that you have to guarantee that every time it will be identical. And um, yeah, so then, then, the, then we say, no, okay, for regular people, we don't want to do that. We want to give them a normal uh, diet. So the diet will be like, you know, bars that contain nuts and, and, and di different uh, tree nuts uh, in the morning. They will have tea. They will have a soup, a vegetable soups uh, in at in in, in noon, and then they will have another snack, uh, healthy snack that, that that respects the fasting mimicking property. And then dinner, there's another soup at night, right? So that's the average uh, 
uh, day of, of fasting mimicking uh, food that is contained in the box. Very cool. And so as we go back to kind of intermittent fasting, like our focus for, for this conversation, you had talked about kind of those foundational schedules that you can look at 12, 12, 14, six or, uh, 14, eight, et cetera. I'm curious, like for people who are even considering intermittent fasting and, and trying it out to see kind of how it feels for them and some of the longer term benefits, um, what are the potential health ramifications that people should be knowledgeable of, or who is, who is this right for? Who is it not right for? Yeah, the, the benefits, I mean, at least, if you go to say 12 or 13 hours of fasting per day, um, you get lots of benefits, clinically proven and no problems, right? And like what, what benefits are we talking about there? We're talking about, you know, improved, uh, potentially improved uh, insulin sensitivity. We're talking about weight loss. Uh, we're talking about, uh, um, uh, you know, maybe a potentially IGF-1 being reduced. Uh, uh, we're talking about sleeping better, yeah, so those are so those are some of the benefits that come uh, just with the let's say 12, 13 hours of fasting. As you go longer, um, you you can get more benefits. You can get more weight loss. You can get you know even more benefits. But then you're starting to see the problems. For example, gallstone formation um, and gallbladder operations, and then you see um, the people that skip breakfast consistently in meta-analysis a meta-analysis is a study of all studies done people breakfast keepers have increased more overall mortality increased cardiovascular disease increased cardiovascular mortality right increase not decrease that's not a good sign right when you see that then you want to say okay i definitely don't want to skip breakfast but even if i skip dinner and i do 16 hours is that a good idea? I think it is only if you're trying to achieve something shorter. Say you do it for three months, you know, and, and you you weight, lose a lot of weight, and then you you then adopt something else like longevity diet, fasting, making diet, which I recommend. Then I think it's fine, right? You have an acute uh, period, you achieve uh, a certain goal quickly, and then you move to something that is not associated with problems in the long run. And some of those short-term goals, I would imagine, like frequently are things like weight loss, right? Or like if you have diabetes, like something related to insulin sensitivity would be like an example. Of only, like it could be something else, right? It could be that, I mean, there are papers out there claiming all kinds of benefits for 16 hours. So it could be something else, you know, better sleep. And so, yeah, you, you could do that for a few months and then get to, okay, I see an improvement and now... Uh, go back to let's say 12 hours or 13 hours of fasting every day and then use the fasting making diet the longevity diet or whatever else it is that that uh, somebody wants to do uh, to maintain those those effects yeah very cool and typically like what is if you were going to try intermittent fasting is there a recommended period of experimentation to actually potentially see how it responds to your body you know as we look at things like weight loss, energy, sleep. If you were just looking at say, hey, I want to try this and you're going to start with, you know, whether it's 12, 12, 14, 8, whatever that might be, is there a minimum amount of time that is recommended to implement this where you could actually see the benefits? Uh, well, first of all, the 12, 12 should be for the rest of your life. Yeah, totally. Got it. Yeah. 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 So, so it should be as soon as possible and for the rest of your life. Again, you know, I, I've never seen and I never got any of my colleagues saying, oh, I found a study that shows negative effects for 12 and 12. OK, so then that's a good one. As you extend it, uh, you know, I think that, um, again, if you do it for three months, whether it works or not, then stop. Right. You know, if, if you want to do it for three months, if it worked, stop. And if it didn't work, stop, right? So then that, that, there is your answer, right? So uh, if you if you if you want to do sixteen hours, uh, try it, and um, you know, and see if it gets you benefits, and whether it does or not. After three months, go to something else, and uh, you know, and then maybe three years on the road, you could do it again. I, I don't think I don't see any reason that you know once in a while they cannot be repeated, but you definitely don't want to do yo-yo, right? You don't want to lose weight and get benefits, then get back to, and then use it every three years to get back. You, 
you, this is, find something you know, we have four clinics, you know, foundation clinics in Italy and, and the United States. And usually it takes us about two years to get somebody converted, right? So we, with lots of drugs and, you know, let's say diabetes, hypertension, to get somebody back into full health, it takes about two years. So it's a slow process and we, we make sure we say you got to get there and you, you, that's it. You know, you're going to stay there and we're going to make sure you stay there. And, uh, and the success rate is pretty high, right? So, but that's, that's why it's very important to have the dietitian, the nutritionist that follows you. And, and it's probably the best to enter a program. But yeah, if, if somebody wants to do it on their own, fine. But uh, yeah, I would do it three months, whether it works or not, stop going to something else. And, uh, and then um, and then keep that. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, you know, as as we're looking at this, I'm curious. Some of the questions that have come up from the people who are in our cohort that are going to be implementing this are really around the differences uh, that intermittent fasting, fasting in general, might have on male versus female bodies. And so, are there differences that people who are participating in male bodies and female bodies should be aware of before they dive into a pretty significant? or, you know, even semi-significant change in their diet? Um, well, with the fasting mimicking diet, we haven't seen it. We tested in clinical trials, both males and females. Uh, I don't remember Sachin Panda talking too much about uh, uh, differences, uh, big differences. So, yeah, so in the initial trials, we haven't seen big differences, but I'm sure there are, and I'm sure it's not just male and female. It's, it's also different people for, you know, different reasons. So... Yeah, the personalization is going to be key. Uh, thus far, I have not uh, heard a, uh, a discussion about, well, females should do this versus males should do that, right? Also, because th- we're talking about very fundamental responses, right? Going from bacteria all the way to humans in different ways and for different reasons. But I'm saying the response of starvation is a very ancient one going back billions of years. And so it's not surprising that you wouldn't see very big differences. Um, but I think you're gonna see more, way more difference between two people uh, that start from very different places, maybe genetically, than you're gonna see from, uh, from a, a female to a male. Yeah, it's like I, I always want uh, doctors on here to synthesize kind of wisdom that's generalized, but obviously it's very hard to prescribe a one-size-fits-all uh, diet or health plan if you don't know anything about the actual person. So I totally understand that. And with with that in mind, I mean, are there any sort of, we had talked about male-female bodies, but as it relates to intermittent fasting, are there any sorts of health conditions or dispositions that should be considered when considering intermittent fasting, whether that is obesity, diabetes, any sort of overarching or, you know, uh, wide reaching health conditions that deserve to be considered into trying intermittent fasting. Yeah, absolutely. So again, uh, 12, 13 hours, no. Uh, as you go to, let's say 14, 13 hours and above, then uh, if you have gallstones, uh, that you know, my NGO up in a in a surgery room, uh, or if you if you're uh, you know have family history of gallstones, um, and uh, and then I think uh, again I don't recommend it. So I don't want to. I think there's probably a long list of reasons why you shouldn't say cardiovascular risk factors already yeah. been up. You know, have knowing that the 16 hour um, skipping breakfast uh, strategy is associated with an increase about a 25% increased mortality uh, overall and 25% increased uh, um, development of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, then uh, you, you, I definitely don't, don't want to, um, I, I think almost everybody should be very worried about, uh, and in fact, everybody should be worried about 16 hours if it involves skipping breakfast. Uh, if yeah. it doesn't involve skip breakfast and it's skipping dinner, um then uh, then we just don't know but uh but it's certainly uh, playing with uh with with a, a um, unknown field yeah yeah what do you think is happening there especially for people who are skipping breakfast like why such a steep decline well there's several papers just uh, uh published and and the skipping breakfast so for example one paper showed two both of these clinical studies showed that 
Uh, if you started eating the same food, but instead, I mean, if you ate the same food, but you started at noon instead of 8, 8 a.m., um, you had a, a reduced uh, uh, energy expenditure. So you burn uh, less less fuel essentially, and you were more hungry. So so yeah. So there's probably signals that have to do with circadian clocks that are making you more hungry, and and they are telling your body burn less energy. And we know, for example, this from uh, also the fasting literature. So if you take people and you keep them on a on a strict diet, and this could also happen with the 16. We don't know, but certainly it, it will make sense that it happens with the 16, 8 eventually. Eventually, and this is a New England Journal of Medicine from 20 years ago. Your body, if it's, it's pushed to the limit, calorie restriction, say severe calorie restriction, it's, it's, it metabolically slows down. So what it enters a thrifty mode. So it enters a mode to, to basically prevent starvation dependent death, right? But, you know, um, that's a problem because now it slows down metabolism compared to your newly acquired body weight. So you say you lose weight, but it slows down metabolism further than your, your weight loss percentage, right? So let's say you lose 10% of body weight and slows down metabolism by 15% or 20%. And now you got a problem because now you have to eat so much less than before uh, the, to, to, uh, to keep the, the weight that you gained. And now your lean body mass, and this is a new clinical trial we just finished, your lean body mass starts going down, right? So now you really get into a very problematic situation where your lean body mass is going down and you struggle to keep the weight down. And eventually you're going to be so hungry <laughs> that you're going to have to eat your way back to normal lean body mass and normal weight. And most of people overshoot, right? So, and this has also been shown. Then you're going to gain more weight than, than even you had originally, right? Um, yeah, so it's, um, it's, a, it's a little complicated. And, but this is why I, I tell people, don't improvise because you, you think you got a solution because you, in a couple of months after things are improving and you may not at all, right? And, or your surprise could come 15 years on the road. Very cool. Yeah, this is, this is really valuable, Walter. I really appreciate this. And I think that we've taken thousands of people through these habit cohorts now. And I think it's just looking at, sure, certainly we're, we're approaching this as experimentation and trying new things. But it's nice to hear you talk about this and ultimately the importance of doing something in such a way that you can continue doing it in perpetuity, right? Not just as an experiment or a one-time thing, especially if it could have the kind of long-lasting ramifications on metabolism and lean body mass like you're talking about. So that's uh, that's really uh, interesting. I'm curious, you, you had just talked about kind of some of the historical uh, precedents and uh, uh, instances of fasting throughout history. So I'm curious if you could just tell us a little more about like, where does this wisdom come from? If you look back historically, religiously, what are some of the foundations of uh, fasting in modern society? Yeah, yeah. So I think that the, the wisdom, of course, comes come from, from our, our, the history of all organisms. And obviously, people started looking at this thousands of years ago and, and not uh, recently. So you'll see quotes from the Greek times about fasting and about food as medicine. Uh, so, yeah, so they make sense that uh, even 3,000 years ago uh, that, that we, we would start looking at, at food and fasting as potential uh, solution to problems. And, um, um, and then you also see it in the animal, in, in animals, so like the emperor penguins, the grizzly bears, so emperor penguins every year, they gain a lot of weight and then they go a couple months with no food at all, right? So... So just the observation of uh, um, lots of different animals that uh, have these periods in which they stop eating um, and um, and they use the body fat and and, um, and and that's normal, right? But of course, uh, in modern society now you have the 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 accumulation of fat, which is part of our normal cycles, life history cycles, and uh, you have the accumulation of fat, let's say in the summer um, or you know, all year round and, and the fasting period never comes around. And that's where the, the, the insulin resistance, the diabetes, the metabolic syndrome uh, come in, right? So, so for humans, yes, of course, it's not surprising that church and, and religions figured that out uh, thousands of years ago. Um, you know, the, the Christians used to have a black fast, right? You know, uh, up to about 800 years ago. 
and the black fast was uh, eight weeks of, of calorie restriction ending during Easter with a week of fasting. And uh, of course, that went away. And now we kept the, the Friday, right? The Friday not eating uh, meat. Or, or So, um, yeah, so then the Muslims, of course, have Ramadan and, and uh, almost every religion has a, a some type of fasting because uh, um, they, of course, uh, uh, probably uh, observe and study the, the behavior of, of people and, and realize that those that were fasting once in a while, they were doing better. Uh, now, again, you know, in the old days, uh, the goal was to make it to 60 years, 65 was already a big achievement, right? You can make it 65. You, now we're talking 110, maybe 115, right? So I, when I we talk to our patients, we're like, even cancer patients, we tell them, we got to get you to 110. And, uh, you know, and maybe we succeed and maybe we don't, but certainly that that's a goal. And, you know, we see that less than 110 is a failure. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so then, you know, how do you get to 110 uh, healthy and not frail? Um, and, uh, yeah, so fasting has to be done exactly, you know, in a precise way so that you can get there. Very cool. Well, I definitely, I think I want to close with some more, uh, more of a deep dive into your work as it relates to longevity, which I'm super fascinated by. I'd be remiss not to ask you some questions about that for sure. And then you, when you talked about the, the FMD diet, you talked about some of the specific uh, things that you, you prescribed eating while on that. I'm curious for intermittent fasting as it relates to your schedule. Obviously, you've talked about the benefits of, of keeping three meals a day. Um, I'm curious if, if there's a cadence where people obviously have different goals for this type of diet. Some people may be doing caloric restriction to lose weight. Some people may be doing it because they want better sleep or they want increased energy and focus. And so I'm curious, like for, uh, is there anything that you would prescribe in terms of which one of those meals you would potentially amplify in terms of caloric intake, protein? Is there a better time or a better meal to prioritize? Is your big one? Is it best to think about it evenly across meals throughout the day? Or like, what is the, the timing amongst those? If you have your eating window, how should you potentially like think about spacing out your, your food intake? Yeah, so I, again, it's personalized, right? So, so for those now, seventy-two percent of Americans are overweight or obese, right? So, wow. for that seventy-two percent, which is almost everybody, um, <laughs> is uh, you know, and Europeans are not that far behind. I think a few Europeans are about fifty, right? So, I mean, when I go to Italy, you say, "Oh, the Americans." We win. It's not the Americans now. Children in America <laughs> and overweight is about the same in the U.S. Yeah. and Italy, right? Yeah. So the the portion, right? So, so I would say if somebody starts in that domain, I always I actually recommend skipping lunch, right? And uh, that's the only one that I think it's it makes it safe. And maybe having a snack uh, for either for lunch or by five p.m. just to make sure. Uh, yeah. So then for the overweight or obese uh, group, we we recommend uh, or, or those that are borderline, let's say they're. BMI, so body mass index 24 and a half, and they're about to move into that, they're gaining weight. Yeah, so go into a, a lunch skipping mode. It's very difficult to handle it for the past, first couple of months. And then you get used to it, then your your body rewires to understand, um, you know, skipping lunch is, is okay. So I skip lunch, for example, um, and I've been doing it for, for 20 years. And, um, and I think that uh, but I don't skip lunch on the weekend, right? So then I have I skip lunch Monday through Friday, and I so I wanted to make sure I minimize any malnourishment issue. I also want to make sure that the body understands both modality, and yeah. uh, just to really almost remove any risk that this may cause. Although we have no evidence for any risk, and to me and a lot of people that of course we recommend it, it works very very well. Again, it's a little bit of a struggle for the first uh, couple months. But then, then you get used to it, and then uh, it's usually a very good way to um, to control weight. Now, uh, you know, if you add the weekend to it, that that makes it easier to 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 control the weight. Uh, and if you don't, it makes it a little bit harder. But it's still a slow process. It doesn't mean it works for everybody, uh, but but it works, right? So, but that's for people that are overweight or obese. For everybody else, I think you know, lunch is perfectly fine, and uh, and breakfast you gotta have. I think at least about 400 calories for breakfast. 
Um, and I would say that within this, the best is what works for you, right? So keeping, you gotta have breakfast, right? But you know, different people, different breakfast, different sizes, right? But let's say three, 400 calories minimum seems to be, you know, uh, qualifying you as having breakfast and not a breakfast keeper. And then, you know, again, lunch, if some people say there's no way I can skip lunch and some people say, hey, if I can skip lunch, it's very easy to me, right? That's much better than whatever minimum advantage you get by skipping dinner versus skipping lunch. And uh, so I say, you know, don't skip anything if you don't need. Uh, but if you are in that category of weight gain or overweight and obese, skip the lunch, have maybe a, a healthy snack at 4 or 5 p.m. and then have a normal dinner. Uh, and that to me is the easiest for me. But lots of people say, no, I'd rather have lunch. And then, and it seems from lots of studies that the lighter dinner, like lots of centenarians that we follow, they tend to have lighter dinner, right? So then maybe is a easier, is better for sleep. And to me, it doesn't matter because there's no way I'm skipping dinner. And, and so to me, since it's such a, it would be such a burden and it's such a social and, you know, I don't even consider it. I, and I will only consider it if it made me develop some disease or some real, like if I started not sleeping and then I realized it was because of the dinner, I would try to move it forward a little bit. Like, you know, say I eat at 8 p.m., 9 p.m., I would move it for, uh, earlier. And if that didn't work yet, then I would consider uh, skipping dinner. But other than that, I, I, I think it's very, very important. That's what we see in the clinics is just that the, per, the person is happy with, with whatever they came up with, right? Yeah, so in matching the, the happiness with the efficacy, I think it's it's what you that's what you have to look for. Yeah. Cool. And then for people who perhaps are, you know, if you're restricting calories in some way, or like I feel like um, oftentimes fasting is associated with weight as like a weight loss technique is oftentimes I think how it's socialized. I'm curious, like, are there ways for people to do this who might have like more like ectomorphic bodies or like consistently skinny and like not trying to lose weight to do this? Or is that something that's not generally recommended? You mean for the people that are, there are already uh, low weight? Thin. Yeah. Who are low weight. Cause we yeah, talked yeah. a little bit more about people who are obese and overweight, but how about on the other side of the spectrum? Yeah. And the other side of the spectrum, I mean, as long as you're above, let's say BMI 20, then you could do it. Of course, if somebody is, let's say a male is BMI 21, I would not, uh, um, I would eat three plus one, three meals, you know, I, I would make sure that I don't go lower, right? So whatever it is that you have to do, stay with the 20.5, don't go lower. Uh, although it's very unusual for males to be at that BMI, but but uh, uh, but yeah, so, and then below that, uh, you shouldn't do any fasting, right? Uh, uh, male and female, uh, unless there is a specific medical reasons reason to do it so we do it with cancer patient for example but we also exclude cancer patients that are usually below bmi 20 and sometimes below bmi 19. um so yeah so then uh, there's a lot of reasons for for team people to see a nutritionist see a physician and say you know here's what i want to do and why have a discussion why you need to do that sometimes if we feel like somebody really needs to do something like cancer patient or somebody with autoimmunity, uh, then we make them gain weight with healthy fats. So we give them a healthy, uh, in, so they eat whatever they eat, plus additional healthy fat supplement, olive oil, nuts, etc. And uh, we get them to gain some weight like that. And then, you know, they can do fasting making diet or in, in, in the case of what you're asking, like more frequent uh, uh, intermittent fasting. And that would bring them back to where they came from, but at least they wouldn't go past that that minimum threshold. Wonderful, um, awesome. So you know, we we've gone over some of the foundations of what intermittent fasting is, what fasting mimicking diets are, the benefits, what's happening in the body, who should do it, health ramifications, things to consider. And so I'm curious, Walter, you spend so much of your time deep in the the research and the biology, what's happening when we shift our diet habits in this way. And I'm curious, it's so much of our diet habits are not intellectual, right? They're emotional. And so as a physician, I'm curious, like you, you focused so much of your life on 
how people can implement healthier dieting, healthier habits into their life. And so how do you as a, as a, a doctor think about how people can most effectively implement new behaviors that are benefiting their health, changing their diet? How do you speak to that more emotional kind of side of people, which is so essential in, in truly behavior change? Yes. So, and I think this goes back to what I, we just uh, discussed a second ago, which you have to be happy, right? You have to be happy uh, with whatever it is that, you know, we, we tell you to do. So when the patient comes to the clinic, the foundation clinic, it's about well, what, what, what do you like, right? So we always start with what would be your ideal uh, diet and what are the things that you cannot give up, right? So we, we recommend a pescatarian diet, fish plus vegan. But if somebody comes in and says, there is no way I'm giving up steaks, uh, we, we tell them that's okay. You know, try to, can you, can you go with one steak a week? And uh, if they say, yeah, that will, I'll be happy with that. Okay, then now we found a, a compromise that, that makes the, the person happy and, and it's okay. You know, th this is not going to greatly shorten your life probably because you have one steak a week. Um, yeah, so then I think it's a matter of me as least, the least invasive, as least, as low invasive as possible, right? And uh, um, so that uh, you change the minimum and you get the maximum effects. And this is why the fasting making diet, uh, we and many clinicians now, thousands of clinicians are so happy with because they basically say, instead of telling somebody, uh, so I'll give, you an, I'll, I'll give you an experimental example, right? So we took mice and we took mice that are on a high calorie, high fat diet and they become big, right? Or we gave, we gave them exactly the same diet, but once a month for five days, we gave them the fasting making diet. And it's just, we published this last year in Nature Metabolism. And it's just really unbelievable how they live as the same as the regular mice and the regular diet. Cholesterol comes back down, weight comes back down. So, you know, so now you're thinking, of course, I'm not going to tell people to have a terrible diet and then do the fasting making diet. But I'm also not going to not tell people that cannot give up the high fat. It's like, okay, well, if that's all you could do, then at least. Take five days, maybe not once a month. Can you do every two months? Can you do every three months and do that? And uh, yeah, so I think that that's what we do. That's we, we like, try to personalize to that person. And of course, this is a lot more than obesity and overweight. This is about cancer. It's about Alzheimer. You know, now we know that your chance of developing Alzheimer doubles, almost doubles in a diabetic patient. So it's about diabetes, about cardiovascular disease, about cancer, autoimmunities. It's not just about what you weigh and how you look. It's about, you know, the, the, the rest of your life, which you, be, you could be living with three or four drugs every day, or you could be living, you know, very healthy, uh, no drugs at all and no diseases, which now is a rare, uh, it's a rare uh, occasion. You know? Very cool. All right, Walter. Well, if you were going to talk to uh, all the people listening to this, all the people who are committing to exploring intermittent fasting, considering, a, a, you know, implementing this, integrating it into their life for at least, a, you know, let's, let's call it a, a couple of months here to try it on. What would you want them to know or consider or think about before they uh, tried on fasting for the first time? What would be your advice or your guidance that you wish everyone had before they uh, really experimented with their first intermittent fasting diet? Yeah, I'll say number one is uh, talk to the, the, the clinic, the foundation clinic or your own, but make sure if you pick your own, uh, and the foundation is called Create Cures, um, and they, do, they can do a telemedicine, you can pick your own, but make sure they know about fasting, right? Don't, don't pick a nutritionist that says, oh, I never, I never done anything like this. And I mean, no means that they really study, they spend a lot of time reading the, the scientific literature, et cetera, et cetera. So that's number one, right? That person can already, the nutritionist, the, di the registered dietitian in the United States can already make a tremendous difference and the, the cost is going to be whatever, $100 or something like that. So I think it's worth the, the, the 100 bucks. And um, yeah, then then I think other than that is, is really pick something that is very safe for you first, right? First, do no harm. So 12 hours, 13 at the most, periodic fasting making diet, maybe three times a year, for the average healthy person. And um, yeah, those will be the And then um, 16 hours, one day every week and all of that, 
Uh, probably not a good idea in general, but yeah, if you want to do it for, for three months and, uh, and make some big changes because this encourages you to be in a different state, uh, then do it and still maybe have a RD, a registered dietitian follow you um, and then move to, uh, to what I just uh, mentioned. Perfect. And Walter, for people who want to take a deeper look at your work, your research, what are the best places to find you online? You've talked a little bit about Create Cures and your foundation and the book. So uh, what are the best places for people to look more deeply into your work and, and all the great things that you're putting out in the world? Yeah, so the Longevity Diet uh, book uh, um, is out there and you can get it everywhere. Uh, then there's another book that's going to come out, I think, in September on cancer. So so wait for that. And um, and then, yeah, the createcures.org uh, uh, foundation clinic uh, in Los Angeles. But again, able to uh, follow you anywhere you are. Um, and those are the, the, the best. And and then I think the foundation um, websites, they we tend to have lots of the publications and stories. And so both Facebook, uh, my Professor about the longer Facebook page, and the I think there is also other uh, social uh, pages that, that my team uh, put together, and then the foundation uh, website itself, where you can you know if you want to download some of the papers, and and at some point I think I, I we also have a, a um, some classes that the uh, online classes that people can uh, uh, can follow and. Um, and uh, they're on the createcures.org uh, uh, website. Perfect. And so, Walter, how about this? We'll close on just uh, vision for the future. So everything goes right. Your research keeps up. Uh, what impact does everything you're working on have on the world and, and, collective, health, and collective health? Well, I think that um, we have to keep demonstrating. So now we finish diabetes trial, trials. Um, it's looking very, very good. Uh, we finished on about 10 cancer clinical trials, and they're looking very promising. And uh, yeah, we're just going to keep on helping clinicians all over the world uh, run clinical trials. And um, and then um, some of it will be positive. Uh, some of it may be in our work, and we'll, we'll see. And But uh, but I think it, I, I really think that food uh, should become part of the physician, registered dietitian, and people's uh, uh, toolkit, right, for, for health. And it doesn't 100%. necessarily mean that the way you eat every day, it can also mean that, you know, food now becomes a medicine and it becomes a medicine in a box uh, that you do once in a while, just like you do any treatment. And uh, But now, of course, it allows your body to fix itself rather than trying to interfere with the body normal uh, processes, which is what most drugs do. Uh, yeah, so this is really important. The body... I always say, if you cut yourself, that wound within a couple of weeks is repaired uh, to perfection. Now, imagine if you try to biohack your way to repair without the natural uh, repair. I mean, it probably take you 50 years, right, to match what's already uh, done almost perfectly by the body. And uh, yeah, so then uh, we believe that the liver, the heart, the brain, all these systems have the same ability to do self-repair but there is just very precise ways to to get that done, and um, and I think some of the the, the food uh, and this medical food is the, probably one of the best ways uh, to achieve that. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, well, Dr. Longo, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate this. We will include all of the links to uh, visit the foundation, more of uh, Walter's research. But thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And uh, best of luck with everything that uh, you're doing in the world. Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much.